are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Mom, yes, are we there yet? I'm going to make a wild stab and guess that this question haunted millions of parents this past week as they made their way to and from holiday destinations. I know this phrase taunted me in my nine hours down and my nine hours back from North Carolina. Are we there yet? Breathe. No, for the hundredth time, not yet, but God willing, we will be there soon, very, very soon. Around the time that Mark wrote his gospel, around the time he penned the words we read this morning, the young community of faith that he was a part of was likely peppering him with the same question, are we there yet? Is Jesus almost here? Are we there yet? Is Rome falling? Are we there yet? Has the end of the world come? Scholars now believe that as Mark wrote his gospel, the temple in Jerusalem, the center of religious and cultural life for the Jewish people, both those who followed Jesus and those who didn't, the temple, the very center of everything, was either about to be or just had been destroyed. Which means that as Mark writes these words, as he gives his account of Jesus' life, the symbol of God's very presence with the people, the thing that reminded them that God was with them, was tumbling to the ground. And those who had chosen to follow Jesus and to believe in his good news of a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth, were wondering out loud if this was how the story was going to end. And so they asked, Mark, are we there yet? Of course, we laugh at this question because we know it's not only a question that kids ask from the back seat of a car. Are we there yet is a question families ask when they watch a loved one battle and die from cancer, when they watch a loved one struggle with depression or addiction. Are we there yet is a question I'm guessing you asked this past week as we watched on TV our nation split and fracture once again over issues of race and inequality. Are we there yet is a question that parents have asked me and Eric and Anthony and I'm sure Amy Kim when a troubled kid of theirs, when a troubled child just can't seem to find their way. Are we there yet is a question asked by anyone and everyone who has the courage to hope for a better tomorrow. We are about to enter into the season of hope when even the most cynical among us brighten up a little bit and allow ourselves to believe, even if just for a few days, a few weeks, that peace is possible, that light will shine in the darkness, and that hope is real. The music, the parties, the stories of the season, even the commercials fill us with a sense of hope and expectation for what is to come. It is, we are told, the most wonderful time of the year, and for a while that seems to be true. And then it happens. The calendar turns on December 26th, and after one last burst of joy around New Year's, reality often comes crashing back down to earth, crashing back down our beautifully constructed creches and our well-intentioned New Year's lists. The season of Christmas that we are all building up to in the coming weeks, despite all its wonder and beauty, and Christmas is wonderful and it's beautiful, despite all its wonder and beauty, we know deep down, we know deep down, 
that Christmas is simply not enough. As Advent begins, as we begin our waiting, we we know we have to be waiting for something more. Perhaps you've seen the latest holiday commercial that's making its rounds on the web. The commercial by Sainsbury, a British chocolate company, recreates an historical event that took place on a Christmas day 100 years ago this year. On that now famous day, Axis and Allied troops, after spontaneously singing Silent Night in their bunkers in their own languages, by some act of grace, stepped out of their bunkers onto the battlefield to greet one another in peace. It's an amazing moment in history, and Sainsbury's recreation is wonderful to watch, even though it's a bit exploitative to sell chocolate. But anyway, (laughs) the point is, it's amazing. You have to Google it and see it. But as often seems to be the case with those mountaintop moments, the moment quickly passes when the bright tones, hopeful tones of silent night are replaced with the tragic sounds of mortar shells and rifle shots that push the men back in their bunkers and cause them to grab once again their guns. Hope is real, but if it's just me, I don't think it's just me. Hope is real, but it sure doesn't seem to last all that long when it comes. Life seems to be defined by two steps forward and ten or twelve steps back. So how do we do it? How do we keep the faith when life disappoints us? How do we hold fast to what we believe when our world around us is crumbling down? How do we wait patiently with faith for Christ to come? Well, in this little apocalypse you heard today from Mark's gospel, I think Mark gives us a clue. In response to the question, are we there yet? Instead of making promises he can't keep, which, by the way, parents, is never a good strategy. Don't say we're almost there unless you're actually almost there. Instead of making promises he can't keep, or distracting his fellow travelers with another video or more goldfish, Instead of distracting them or lying to them, Mark invites the listeners, invites his readers, invites us, those of us who know that Christmas is just the beginning of the story, he invites us to find hope for the future by by looking back at another time, another instance, when we had to wait for Christ to come. You may have missed it, it's buried in the passage, but buried around that language about the sun and moon darkening and the scars falling and the Son of Man coming on a cloud. But in today's passage, Mark makes a subtle connection to what's just around the corner for Jesus and his followers. In the mini-parable that ends this text about the second coming of Jesus, Mark foreshadows the passion of Jesus, the passion that begins in the very next chapter. Listen again to how Mark ends this section, beginning at verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey, Mark writes, when he leaves his home and puts his slaves in charge, each to his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn. Or else he may find you asleep when he suddenly comes. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. It's easy to miss it, but did you catch it? 
the chronology, the chronology of this mini parable mirrors the chronology of the scenes leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. As they await for Jesus to return to them and make all things new, Mark has the people look back to the miracle that changed everything. The Last Supper in Mark begins with, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Jesus prays in the garden, we are told, in the middle of the night. At the trial, at the close of the trial, Peter denies Jesus for a third time, and then the cock crows. And Jesus is delivered to Pilate for trial as soon as it was morning in the dawn. Keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, when all hope seems lost. What if, as his community of faith struggles to hold on to hope, as their world around them crumbles, what if Mark directs them back to the defining event of their past to help them find hope for tomorrow? What if Mark is telling them, what if he's telling us, that the new heaven and the new earth that we are waiting for this season and every Advent season, what if he's telling us that it's already come? It's already here, just not in the packaging we expected. This past week, all of our eyes were glued to the TV, I'm guessing, watching the events unfold in Ferguson, Missouri, as we awaited the grand jury's decision. And amidst all the tension... Few policemen have done more in Ferguson to help the situation than a guy named Jerry Lohr. You may have read about him this week in the paper. Jerry Lohr is a white lieutenant of the St. Louis County Police Department. Lieutenant Lohr, a father of three with an Army buzz-style haircut, likes to give hugs to both friends and strangers. And he's one of the policemen overseeing the security at the Ferguson Police Station. Not an easy task. He stands watch, stands guard, it's a symbol of the oppression of the people. Now, unlike most of his colleagues, though, Jerry Lohr never puts on his riot gear. He never puts on the flak jacket and the helmet. Even when he wades into a group of protesters to answer questions, hear their complaints, resolve disputes, or listen to a stream of insults directed at him. He prefers instead to meet the people where they are as he is in his normal police attire. And because of his willingness to reach across the divide, protesters often ask for him by name. They know who he is. As we know now, the outrage that many black residents of Ferguson feel over the killing of Michael Brown find its, finds its roots in their anger over what they characterize as abusive and racially targeted practices of the Ferguson police force. And yet amidst all that fear and anger, one officer still believes that simple acts of kindness, of humanity, and compassion can alter the landscape. Instead of waiting passively for things to get better, Lieutenant Lohr lives as if they will. In a recent article in the New York Times, he explained why he tries so hard to build relationships with the people of Ferguson. This is what he said. Allowing people to talk on a one-on-one level does a lot as far as building bridges. They may not agree with what I'm doing, but now they at least know my name and my face. I'm human again. They realize that I'm a person. I'm, just not, I'm not just a uniform. We have to bridge this gap, he continues. It's not going to happen overnight. This is going to be a long-term relationship, a long-term commitment. 
that both sides are going to have to make. I don't know what your family talks about at Thanksgiving, but my politically diverse family talked about Michael Brown, gun violence, the threat of radical Islam, President Obama, the place of the church in the world in a state of our nation. It was so wonderful. (laughs) Oh, it was such a party, such a party. Seriously, my family, we agree on nothing. We've got everything. We've got Fox News watchers, folks that watch The Daily Show. We've got New York Times people. We've got The Post. We've got The Wall Street Journal. We've got everything. It makes for a very loud morning breakfast. And we don't agree on much. And we do agree on something, I take notice and start listening. And over the weeks, something bubbled up that we all did agree on. As a nation, as a people, as a church, we all agreed that we have lost the important discipline of patience. Instead of living into hope, we live like five-year-olds in the backseat of their parents' car, continually asking, are we there yet? With our eyes fixed on some unknown future, we often miss both the beauty and the brokenness of our world as it flies past our windows. Instead of waiting patiently with hope, we too often wait impatiently with fear. I've said it before, I promise you I'm going to say it again, but I'm going to say it now. Change, real change, lasting change, the kind of change that lifts people up out of poverty, the kind of change that addresses the root causes of violence and injustice and inequality, the kind of change that heals racial tensions and brings communities together. That kind of change takes a lot of patience. In the era of quick fixes, 24-hour news cycles, iPad smartphones, and instant messaging and Snapchat, patience is in short supply, and yet is exactly what we need, what we desperately need to make the long journey from where we are to where we want to be. So how do we get it? How do we get the patience of Jerry Lohr, or Nelson Mandela, or Gandhi, or Lincoln, or Moses, or Mother Teresa, or Pope Benedict? Where do we get the patience to battle cancer like Jim and Tony did? Where do we get the patience to overcome an addiction like I know many of you have? Where do we get the patience to do what is necessary to end systemic violence in our world? Where do we get the strength, the patience to persevere as we wait and wait for a new heaven and a new earth? What if we find it, not by looking ahead, but by looking back to what God has already done that has changed the world? Part of my drive this past week was AM radio, much to my family's chagrin. I love to listen to AM radio and hear really bad preaching. It inspires me. (laughs) Some of it's fine, but one of the themes that often drives me crazy is the use of texts like these to encourage Christians to sit on their hands. If the end of the world's coming... Hey, man, just relax. It's going to come. God will take care of everything. For too long, Christians have sat passively watching the world fall apart and saying, see, it's a sign that the end is near. If the end is coming soon, we don't have to worry about deficits or global warming or violence or the growing disparity between the rich and the poor. God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. When I hear that, my blood literally boils and I drive a bit too fast. Because now more than ever, we need people, good people of faith, to work diligently and wait patiently 
for the kingdom that is to come. But the problem is, that's not an easy thing to do. Because the season of Advent, the season we find ourselves in, is not about our best world. It's about our worst world. Because it's into this worst world that the light shines, that the light was born. When we take the time and the patience to look at things, to really look at things, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to see how things can get better. It's hard to generate hope for a future that we simply cannot see. Which is why we need to look back at what God has already done in Jesus to find the strength to wait and work for what is to come. Are we there yet? No, not yet, but look at where we've been as a church, as a nation, as a people, and look at how far we've come. Are we there yet? No. But in your own life and in the world, look at all the places where light shined in the darkness and surprised you each and every time. Are we there yet? No, of course not. Not yet. But God is here, doing what only God can do to inch us one step closer day by day, week by week, year by year to the kingdom, the future that God intends for all people. I know a lot of you are waiting for something new, something good to happen to you, to your family, to this world. Look back. Look back to find the strength for today and the hope for tomorrow. Look back to see all that God has done and all that God will do through the one who has already come to make all things new. Amen.